0: Welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's biggest challenges. In today's special episode, recorded at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, Sadia Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, is interviewed by the WEF's own, Klaus Schwab. It's a conversation on tech that you won't get anywhere else. I'll let them get into it.
1: This uh, special session, and I have to say maybe... Uh, because my my heart is ultimately an engineer's heart. Um, I'm always looking forward to this session, which uh, becomes a tradition. And uh, I don't have to introduce, of course, uh, Satya Nadella. Um, And we have this dialogue, uh, uh, trying to get an understanding about what's happening. And you, as the leader of probably... Uh, one, or if not, the know. leading um, tech company, uh, you will enlighten us, certainly. Um, so we will have a dialogue. But I, I want to thank you also here um, in in this context for uh, Satya, for the a great cooperation we have together with uh, Accenture. Um, I know uh, two years ago, we had this, we just went- talked about it. We had a discussion about uh, how we could, in-, in some way, democratize the World Economic Forum and allow people who cannot come to Davos to participate. And of course, the Metaverse or the three-dimensional virtual room, however you want to call it, I think provides a tremendous opportunity. So we started our cooperation uh, to build the Global Collaboration Village. Uh, we started uh, this cooperation just two years ago. Um, at the last know, meeting, we showed the first uh, demonstration uh, and now it has become reality. So if uh, you are ever interested, uh, please go to the Global Collaboration Village and see the tremendous potential. Uh, we actually have the first, um, the first inhabitants. Uh, we have five or four of our partners plus an international organization, which have established their presence now in the global collaboration village uh, to reach out to customers and to uh, not mainly to customers, but mainly to the public to talk about particularly what they are doing in the social area. So, um, uh, Satya, um, when, when, um, we met, uh, last time, uh, generative AI was a very young baby. <laughs> now it has, I would say, it has become a teenager very fast from a big, <laughs> from a small baby. Um, what, it has taken less than a year. What, how do you see the situation? Now, first of all, it's uh,
2: wonderful to be back here at uh, the World Economic Forum, Klaus. And um, also, it's unbelievable to see the vision you had for the Global um, Collaboration Village from two years ago take such shape. Um, you're right. I mean, the, the interesting thing is I distinctly remember uh, in 93 November is when I think Mosaic first came out um and obviously for me that was a very big event i joined microsoft in 92 um and and the web changed a lot and so november of 2002 is when chat gpt i think um really helped i think all of us perhaps for the first time relate to this new generation of ai um and and since then as you said things have been scaling this rate of diffusion uh, across countries, across industries has been really fast and furious. And it's just been fantastic to see. For me, by the way, the first time I became a real believer that something had drastically changed was when I saw GitHub Copilot. Uh, it was probably six to eight months before even Chat GPT, when I started seeing for the most elite knowledge work there is, software engineering, you see a new tool that changes uh what, uh you know in fact the drudgery of software engineering the joy of software engineering was back and the drudgery was out that's what made me a, a real convert that uh this is pretty magical and since then we have obviously launched copilot you know copilot for broad horizontal work frontline work we have copilots for security operations uh you see now have copilots in healthcare for you know really in, ensuring that you can reduce the physician burden when it's uh when it comes to uh, having the dialogue with their uh, patients um, or, you know, one of the UAE has rolled out a personalized tutor uh, for every student in the country. And so this rate of diffusion, this ability to take, in fact, I think Bill first talked about information at your fingertips at Comdex in 93, and this is more uh, about intelligence at your fingertips or expertise at your fingertips. And that's, I think, the era we are definitely in. And uh, and I think 24 will probably be the year where all of this will scale.
1: Yeah. Satya, I have to confess, um- some of the introductions of people, uh, which I had to write, I wrote with <laughs> uh, chat GPT. Uh, uh, but don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. No, um, there's, there's a lot of discussion about AI during this meeting. Mm. And we talk about impact. We may later talk about productivity, particularly in the context of the economy. But, um, what is overlooked in this discussion? Do you feel we talk about impact on skills and so on? What, what is overlooked in your opinion? I mean, not, it's not overlooked, but I think what is, um,
2: salient, I think is, obviously I talked a lot about what it's going to do to horizontal knowledge work and frontline work, but I think it's about what AI will do to science, uh, perhaps is the most interesting thing, uh, to me because, um, take, uh, In fact, just last week, uh, we announced something which, you know, I had not, you know, I I sort of felt like, yeah, this is something that can be done, but I had not understood that this can be done. Um, So we took one of our models called MatterGen, which is a sort of a generative model to generate new molecules and material. And we put it through an entire round trip where we came up with new molecules for a new material, went to, worked with in collaboration with one of the national labs in the United States, the Pacific Northwest National Lab, um, and figured out how to produce a new battery that's got 70% less lithium, Uh, right? That's just phenomenal to sort of, when we think about, uh, the, you know, the climate, uh, the energy transition, it's about taking 250 years of chemistry and somehow bringing it down to 25 years, right? So this is a proof point of that. Same thing is happening in biology. I see Jim in the front row here, you know, if I think about what we're doing even with PAGE and what we can do with cancer detection, uh, or what we're doing with Broad uh, in, uh, you know, again, in molecular, in, in biology and to be able to use AI to sim, simulate uh, the molecular behavior. Uh, so I think that science is probably the place where we will start seeing real acceleration. So up to now, the digitization revolution has brought new tools to science, but has not fundamentally accelerated science. But if you can fundamentally accelerate science, the, you know, d- cures to diseases, the energy transition, uh, fundamental new material, uh, science, all of these, I think, are going to be pretty, pretty f- profound.
1: Now, everybody talks about AI, but actually, there are many other technologies in the fourth industrial revolution. And I think it's particularly the combination of AI, uh, AI with some of those technologies. What other technologies create uh, this progress for society, in your opinion?
2: On the technology front, I'm always sort of, you know, anchoring back to three things, right? One is, um, when it comes to the core compute infrastructure, we just need more of it. Uh, so we have the von Neumann machine that still rules the world, Uh And the question is, can we birth the new quantum revolution? So I'm always excited about quantum. In fact, some of what we're seeing is AI as the emulation layer for what is going to be the simulation layer, which is quantum, right? So if I think about uh, these two things, that's very powerful. So quantum is one, AI, of course. The other one is you know, mixed reality presence. I'm very interested in, you know, when I think about embodied AI is the other way to think about it, right? Which is whether it's sensors on us, which is sort of a little more of the devices like VR, AR, mixed reality, or, you know, humanoid robots uh, is another one, or, you know, on, on the automobiles that are autonomous. So I think of these three things uh, as perhaps where compute, AI, and uh, fundamentally autonomous and mixed reality devices are all going to come together to create, I think, the platforms of innovation.
1: Would you agree when we look back in history and a similar invention was probably the invention of printing? Hmm. And it created the Renaissance. Um Do you feel that uh, those technologies can really create a new renaissance for humankind? I think that see the, the, the general purpose technologies, that's the power of these, right? The
2: general, when, when you have, like, even for me, one of the things that's sort of a real privilege of, for me is to be able to come to a forum like this, to have a chance to meet with. People in retail, people in pharma, people in banking, people in every sector of the economy across every region of the world and say, wow, digital technology is being used in profound ways. That means this is a general purpose technology. So anytime when there are real breakthroughs in general purpose technology and the frontier is shifted, yeah. I think that broad ability to have renaissance, right, which you'll have better medical outcomes, you'll have better educational outcomes, uh, better you know, products and services in our lives. And that that abundance, that innovation is, I think,
1: what drives human societies forward. During the meeting uh, here and, uh, of course, before, I had quite a number of discussions with heads of government and state. And particularly if we take uh, less developed countries, they are afraid that this could become a new divider uh, and create a new tension between North and South, would you, do you feel along the same lines or? I
2: I think that it it is something that we have to be very, very mindful of because the last thing the world needs is technologies that create more of the divide, right? I mean, if anything, uh, my hope for sure is centered on realizing what we just talked about. Like, think about it, you have now a technology like something like GPT-4 that, essentially can be used to create a personal tutor for every student in the world, right? It's absolutely economically feasible, uh, even with just the government spending that's happening even in the global south, right? So it's not just in the UAE, but it can happen everywhere. Same thing with medical advice, right? So you can have in the pockets of every person in the world, all 8 billion of us, better medical advice, uh, better advice on how to exercise your rights or your ability to get at assistance from your own local governments and so on. So I think really the potential is there. There is always barriers, right? One of the things I feel great about is when one of the barriers can be access to computing. The fact that the last 15 years, how cloud and mobile have become ubiquitous, That's one of the reasons why I feel, Klaus, that this generation of technology will diffuse a lot faster. What may have taken 15 years or 10 years, depending on how you count with the cloud computing era, may take five or even less. And this will cover even the global south.
1: Now, what do we need really to get to ensure a better uh, tomorrow? I, I, I would say... Um so' with technology we have as a theme here um rebuilding trust, and I mentioned this morning in my opening speech that uh the fast speed of technology also leads to fear and uh maybe to pessimism and uh is thats the source of what we see today in terms of polarisation of uh opinions and so on uh how how can we make sure that we get it right? Yeah. What, what would be your most uh, significant advice? Yeah. To me, I think um, the
2: thing for us in uh, as a digital technology industry, the biggest lesson learned, perhaps for us, is that we have to take the unintended consequences of any new technology um, along with all the benefits. Uh, and think about them simultaneously, as opposed to waiting for the unintended consequences to show up and then address them. And so I think that's the, the, the fundamental change in the last 10 years, because I, I feel like our license to operate as an industry depends on that, because I don't think the world will put up anymore with any of us coming up with something that has not thought through safety, trust, equity. Uh, These are big issues for everyone in the world. And so I think, and this, by the way, is not new for many other industries, but it is a little new for the tech industry. And we have to sort of raise up to the occasion, if you will. In that context, I feel I'm very optimistic of because of the dialogue that's happening. One, people in our own industry are stepping it up, right? To say, okay, here are the ways we are going to uh raise the standards on safety. For example, the amount of time that is spent on doing alignment work, safety work before GPT-4 uh, was released. Uh, that is substantial investment that OpenAI and we made, and that's in fact becoming the norm across all foundation models. And that's great to see. I'm also, of course, is not just being left to the industry. The government's all over, whether it's in the United States. We have an executive order in the US. We have, you know, we had a safety okay. summit in the UK. The European Union cares deeply about it. China cares about it. So everybody is converging. That's also good to see the world sort of coming and saying, we need new technology. We need some guardrails and we need norms of how we deploy this technology. And that, I think, that combination of private innovation with safety First, approach to engineering, I would call it, and then regulation that allows us to ensure that the broad societal benefits are amplified and the unintended consequences are dampened, I think was going to be the
1: way forward. But it will be very important to develop global regulations. And in the present fragmented situation, it will be very difficult. We see already now, uh, Europe and the U.S. have different approaches. I was very happy to hear the Chinese premier this morning making a commitment also to a global regulatory, uh, um, approach. Uh, is there any realistic chance that we may see something similar to, um, the environmental area where we have COP or the international energy, um, agency? Yeah. Uh, do you, do you feel A, this is desirable and B, is it, um, realistic?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think it's very desirable because I think without, at this point, these are global, uh, challenges and require global norms and global standards. Otherwise, uh, it's going to be very tough to contain, tough to enforce, and tough to, quite frankly, move the needle even on some of the core research uh, that is needed. Um, but that said, I must say that there seems to be broad consensus, though, that is emerging. If I had to sort of summarize the state of play, the way I think we're all talking about it is that Uh, It's clear that when it comes to large foundation models, we should have real rigorous evaluations and red teaming and safety and guardrails before we launch anything new. Um, And then when it comes to applications, we should have a risk-based assessment of how to deploy this technology. If you're deploying it in healthcare, you should apply healthcare regs to AI. If you're deploying it in financial services, you should uh, deploy again, the financial risk consideration. So I think that if we take even something as simple as that as a basis to build some consensus and norms, I think we can come together. Uh, so I'm hopeful, I don't know whether there's a new agency, uh, but I think at least even all the capitals that I'm at that where people are talking about it, they're not talking about it differently. They're all
1: essentially talking around the same set of issues. But uh, Satya, do you think that the politicians, I mean, uh, I, as an engineer, I'm always trying to be at the forefront of technology and so on, but I have difficulties to capture what uh, artificial intelligence, and particularly uh, the new forms, uh, really is. I, I had to learn to use, um, let's say, chat not just like I use um as a search machine, but to really use it as colleague and to ask questions. And um but uh, do you think politicians have the? Uh, I I I asked our very uh, how shall I say uh, uh, pertinent question. Mm-hmm. Do you think politicians have the sophistication to understand and in such a way regulate uh, AI? I, yeah, look, I at the end of the day i
2: think nothing can outstrip our sort of uh ability to govern it right which is at the end of the day uh, human society, the biggest lesson of history is that not to be so much in awe of some technology that we sort of feel that we cannot control it, we cannot use it for the betterment of our people. So in that context, uh, we need our politicians to lean in. And I see it, right? It's not... The other thing, Klaus, you said, which I... I again, this is the one time, if I look at the 70-year arc of human history, I mean, computing history... <laughs> This is the easiest technology, right? In other words, the breakthrough here is in fact the 70 years we've been striving to find the most natural user interface so that computers understand us, not us understanding computers. So I don't think it's about politicians. It's about really politicians, it's about more about the technology needs to be simple enough, straightforward enough. It may be miss, you know, very high tech in, inside, but it should be governable. Uh, and the principles of governance should be clear. And
1: I'm very optimistic that that'll happen. So regulating the applications, I mean, there is this uh, different approach: regulating more the input side and regulating, on the other hand, more the applications. I think that. What that's would it. you What would you argue for? I would.
2: I would do both ends of it, right? Because at the frontier of it, the key, for example, there are two types of things. There is risks that are here and now. Right. Yep. For example, you can take and take. Uh, something like deep fakes and what it could do to the uh, democratic process, or you could take bioterrorism. These are here and now issues and those things should be dealt with regulations of the application domain and the dissemination of information and what have you. Then there is the existential risk of, this is after all a self-improving technology, or if it does become a self-improving technology and we lose control, that's the control problem yeah. uh, and the AI take off, and that's viewed as the existential issue. And so the bottom line is, in order for us to ensure that that doesn't happen, you have to have a set of safety around it and regulation around it before anybody uses lots of compute to produce something. Uh, so that's, I think, the two ends of it.
1: If everybody uses a lot of um, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, don't you see a limitation given by the energy consumption, which uh, will be necessary, I mean, and so we will have a curve um, pressuring down because it becomes environmentally uh, unsustainable?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because, first of all, Maybe a couple of ways at least I come at it. One is, you know what is the compute uh, draw of global power is around two to three percent today? Uh, let's say it doubles. Mm-hmm. Then let's go to the other side of it. The output of compute, right? If you'd measure like even take something like artificial intelligence in terms of cost per token, the cost per the Moore's law is very much alive when it comes to AI. In fact, the prices are dropping. Uh, like the best days of Moore's law. So that means the world is benefiting from the most malleable source of input, right? As a factor of production, where the costs are coming down. Uh, then let's combine it with what I said previously, which is if you want to compress 250 years of chemistry to 25 years, find new materials, find new breakthroughs in biology, this is the input. So, this is going to be the one that will really help us create that abundance, that acceleration, and what have you. And do it, by the way, with the most efficient way possible. Then the other side of it is upstream, for example, these are all greenfield projects. Today, we are one of the largest buyers, if not the largest buyer, of renewable uh, when it comes to all our data centers. We are stimulating, in fact, the demand for whether it's wind or solar or uh, e- nuclear, everything, uh, and everything in between. And so therefore there's some of the innovation happening around sustainability, uh, whether it's, and it, by the way, it's not just on carbon, it's carbon, water, and waste. And so I feel that I think some of what we will stimulate as really the, re- the, re- the energy transition uh, will then power what is the most efficient factor of production, which will then lead to that fundamental acceleration and productivity.
1: Satya, when we had um, the emergence of the internet 20, 25 years ago, people spoke very much about the impact on the economy. And at that time, many people argued this will uh, increase productivity. But we have seen sluggish productivity growth. Uh, now we have the same situation, many people saying um, we will have great uh, increase in economic productivity, which will drive, of course, uh, global uh, prosperity. Um, will we be positively surprised or will we be disappointed as we were to a certain extent yeah, with so, the internet?
2: Yeah, this is something that uh, I'm very, very, uh, let's say, both passionate about and I'm very grounded in because... Uh, To your point, right now, as we speak, uh, inflation adjusted, uh, there is no economic growth in the world, I would say. Um, And that's a pretty disappointing state. In fact, the developed world may have negative economic growth. And so um, in a world like that, we may need a new input. And that's why I'm very optimistic about AI being that general purpose technology that drives economic growth. You know, by the way, here's the interesting economic fact, even Robert Gordon, who has written most uh, eloquently about sort of the critique of information technology and productivity, will acknowledge that PCs were the last time uh when actual uh economic growth came about, right? So the first time, the last time it showed up in productivity stats were when PCs became ubiquitous. In fact, I think of this AI technology very much like the PC, PC generation. Because if you think about it, right, in fact, I shudder to think, Klaus, I don't know how the heck we managed to do uh, work before PCs. Like think about doing uh, as a multinational company forecast, right? Before email, uh, a spreadsheet, I don't even know how we would do forecasting. Mm. But somehow, I guess we did it. But now we do forecast and the business process changed. Similarly, I think in this co-pilot era, as it spreads, I think what's going to happen is work and work artifacts and workflow are fundamentally going to change. And that is going to lead to economic output. That will also lead to that scientific acceleration. So these two things, I do believe, should get us back to, you know, know, without inflation or inflation adjusted two to three percent. Uh, of economic growth. That has to be our target. And that's, I think to me, that's the bar, right? So to your point, if this is, you know, look, I don't know, in the last 15 years, there's arguments about how do one measures. But I, by one other observation I'd say is, the mobile phone revolution in particular was phenomenal. It changed a lot of the consumer workflow. It changed consumption patterns, right? After all, we were able to consume more video. We were able to consume more social media. Lots of interesting information was available to us. Lots of news. Whereas now, again, if you think about it, you're back to creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're back to, like, in fact, it is fascinating. One of my colleagues was telling me about her four-year-old son uh, one weekend said, Mom, I need more, you know, designer time. So, she, you know, the, the kid wants to create uh, more designs and prompt more designs. That is like the beginning, I think, of that productivity revolution.
1: Yeah, I just want to take you up. I have a 15 years, 16 years old grandson who told me, look, when you are back from Davos, I want your advice. What should I study in order to be a big guy in artificial intelligence, <laughs> what, what would you uh, recommend <laughs> to tell him?
2: Like That's a very key word, big guy. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think the, the beauty, I think, quite honestly, of artificial intelligence is you can study whatever. Like, I, in fact, one of my, my pet things, I'm a trained electrical engineer. When I was studying electrical engineering, I never understood Maxwell's equations. Uh, but <laughs> now I finally get it. Because guess what? Because I was, in fact, I got it before the artificial intelligence because somebody wrote a lovely website in JavaScript which visualized uh, the Maxwell's equation. So now anyone can pick up any field of study, any science, anything, and see that the AI can be really helpful in helping them learn the most difficult concepts.
1: If I switch uh, for a moment, uh, we are coming to an end, but... um You know, it's the soul of the World Economic Forum is stakeholder capitalism. Now, there have been some counter movements. What is your present thinking about stakeholder capitalism? I, I mean, I mean, it is a fact,
2: right? Sort of the way I've thought about the way you've conceptualized WEF is the social contract. Like, take Microsoft. Our license to operate in the world comes from us finding profitable solutions to the challenges of people and planet. Mm -hmm. And the two, and this, I picked this definition from Colin Mayer at Oxford. I like that sort of succinct way of saying what is the social purpose of a corporation. I think of the two keywords, right? The profitable piece, after all, the best known mechanism we have found is to be able to allocate our sort of scarce resources to create profit is the best way to generate innovation. I respect that. But then the second part is the other keyword, right? Which is solutions to the challenges of people and planet. If these are not, like what do you create ultimately? If it is not a, a solution, Not just for your investors' returns, but it has to be a solution uh, for the challenges of the people and planet. That's the way, in fact, our investors, so to your point about multi-stakeholderism, it's not a a nice thing. Our investors should care about multiple stakeholders because that's the only way they can get long-term returns. Uh, And the license to operate for the company exists. So that's the view I've taken. Um, and I'm glad you really brought about, I would say, that awakening in business and, quite frankly, broad society that thinking about all the stakeholders. And one of the other things I've realized in my 10 years as CEO, perhaps, is if there's one lesson I've learned is it's not about one stakeholder at a time. It's about all the stakeholders all the time. Yeah. Uh, and it's tough. It's not easy. But that is the job. Uh, because if you don't do that, you are not serving the one stakeholder that you care about, which is the investor.
1: Yeah, it's not an easy or. That's right. It's a, as well, as well. Uh, you just mentioned you have been CEO now for 10 years. Now, it's a context has so much changed for leading a company and uh, this means also you have to adapt your leadership capabilities so if you compare yourself satya with what you have been 10 years before how would you say you have developed new facets uh, to your leadership style uh, which are necessary in today's uh, context, uh, and what would you advise uh, to the audience? What can they learn? I mean, you are one of, if not the most successful entrepreneur in the world or business leader. What, what, what should people share with you?
2: That's a great, great question, uh, Klaus. I'm not. You know, in all, the, on- the honest answer is I'm not really reflected on. uh you know, the 10 years in some sense as much as I've been reflecting on, this is my 32nd year at Microsoft. Yeah. And um, it's the second year of AI. Mm-hmm. Um, and my 32 years have been punctuated by three other sort of real paradigm shifts that uh, I've been privileged enough to participate in. The PC, client, server, Uh, was the first, the second was the web, the third was the mobile and cloud, and now the fourth is AI. And so in some sense, I'm trying to learn, go back to year twos of the other three. So I'm trying to sort of relearn how should I operate when it's year two um, of any paradigm shift, which is different, right? Because when you're building something new, um, it requires you to have a very different profile of what is risk, what is scale, what is investment required. Uh, it's always difficult. In fact, in our business, there is no franchise value. So you have to be all in uh, on the new while at the same time maintaining what it currently runs the business. And so I think that that's a very difficult task. We've done it, I would say, successfully. But there are no guarantees. Yeah. Uh, and so with that sort of humility, I would say, uh, that, that's the thing. It's not about, you can't have hubris because that's what's brought down civilizations and companies and people from ancient Greece to modern Silicon Valley. Uh, but you do need to have some confidence that you've done it before, uh, and some humility that you can learn something new. And so that's the posture I would take. I, I
1: would end to maybe see, uh, the capability to think conceptually has become much more important. Uh, and I I, I feel uh, the, the horizon of the concept has so much widened. And that's probably, I mean, that's what I'm experiencing in the forum, uh, where we deal with all the issues. Um, it was easy 20 years ago, and now it's, it's dealing with complexity. Complexity, yeah. Dealing with complexity. Yeah,
2: and someone was mentioning to me in the forum, I mean, it's true. I mean, even when I look at um sort of um, let's face it, the last 10 years, 15 years in the, you know, with the interest rates where they were, you know, we look forgotten. I myself have forgotten when was the last time we had a recession? Yeah. Um, it's been a long time. Uh it's not and that is true in the United States. But one of the things that was a your point, somebody said, go to, you know, send your management teams to many other countries that have dealt with this all the time. And so to some degree, learning from what is happening around the world is another conceptual understanding that I think we can all
1: take. To, to finish our session, uh, would you agree that uh, we moved from uh, agricultural to industrial age and then we uh, moved to a service-dominated uh, economy and now we move to a intelligent economy, but much faster since the other transitions uh, took time.
2: I, I think so. I think I think they all build on each other, obviously. But the thing that I feel is that we've never had a, a broad, general-purpose technology that diffused to all corners of the globe and created abundance equally.
1: Mm-hmm
2: that's the dream yeah. uh, what will the world look like if we were able to solve global
1: problems as one community uh, we have a shot at it so we should take technology uh, in the context of our um, theme of the annual meeting uh, technology can help to rebuild confidence right. and trust thank you very thank much you so Satya much
0: That was Klaus Schwab and Sadia Nadella. Thanks so much to them and thanks to you for listening. Find a transcript of this episode as well as transcripts from my colleagues' episodes of Radio Davos and WEF.ch slash podcasts. Me and my colleagues are covering the annual meeting all week, so make sure to follow on social media with the hashtag WEF24 or online at www.weforum.org for the latest insights from the world's top leaders. This episode of Meet the Leader was produced and presented by me with Taz Kelleher as editor and Gareth Nolan driving studio production. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum reporting from beautiful Davos. Have a great day.